Good morning, everybody. It's afternoon. It is noon. It is noon. It is good noon. Good noon, everyone. Uh, everybody have a good weekend. Yeah. Man, I had an awesome weekend. I was a part of a committee through Go Now, which is the BSM's sending organization throughout the state of Texas. Uh, we prayed about and discerned uh, trips, mission trips, for 460 spots for students to be sent all over uh, Texas and the United States and the world. So there are some pretty sweet spots out there, uh, some of whom I thought for individuals in this room, thought, man, you guys really should go check some of these out. Uh, that list is going to come out October 1st. So there's mission trips for the semester, mission trips for the summer, short-term trips like two weeks to a month long. Uh, I want to put that bug in your ear now because it's going to be super sweet, and I want to get a bunch of you guys going all over the world to tell people about Jesus. So it's going to be pretty cool. There's one in Missoula, Montana that's like... Uh, Missoula, Montana, which is in the middle of nowhere, and you will be doing like exclusively uh, outdoor sports, hunting, kayaking, hiking, going around telling people that live in log cabins about Jesus. I think it'd be pretty cool. Um, one other thing I wanted to put in your ear, uh, we've talked about this before, but the staff, the BSM staff has made a commitment to be praying at least three times a week together for our ministry, for our campus, for things that are happening. And so every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m., we meet at the chapel to pray together. Sarah Russell's there. She's part of our prayer ministry team. A few students are there, but we want to open that up. I would love to see that meeting just grow and grow um, because we are engaged, as we're going to actually look at today, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And so if we are only trying to fight that battle with fleshly means, as uh, great as our efforts are, if it's apart from spiritual realities, if we're not uh, engaged in this work through prayer, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And so the, the staff has made that commitment to be lifting this up in prayer, but I want to I ask you guys, if, you would, if you've got time at 9 in the morning, we only pray for like 30 minutes, we're done by 9.30, it's kind of become a cool structure in my week to just pray before we get to the rest of the day. So that's at the Village Chapel where we meet for Crave and do all that other stuff. Um, grab your Bible, we're in 2 Kings. And we're going to keep going. If this is your first time at Manna, I'm glad you're here. My name's Chase. Uh, the way that this works is we gonna, we're going to read verse by verse through uh, these chapters in 2 Kings. This is not meant to be a sermon on everything that we could. I mean, even a sermon is not preaching on everything that you could be preaching in a text. But especially with the nature of this, we're going to try and get through about five chapters today. Um, so we're, there's a lot more that could be said about these verses. That's really not what we're trying to do. If one thing, I'm just trying to read these with you guys because I know a lot of you haven't read it before. And so we're just, we're just going to read it together. Okay, first time. I'm going to give you some context. I'm going to give you a little bit of a bigger picture way, see how this kind of connects to things. But I would really encourage you with these, with these stories that we're looking at today especially, um, there have been a number of great studies just camped out on one of these incidences, and we're going to go through like 10 today of these little incidents. And so I would encourage you, maybe even just throughout this week, I know we've got the reading plan, we've got some other stuff, but, but maybe just camp out on these as you're reading the Bible on your own. We've talked about it today, you kind of got a framework for what's going on, and just sit and think about 
the the spiritual realities, the the good truths of God's word, the the things that we learn about God that can be pulled out of just one of these incidents. Okay, so I'd, I would encourage you just to to sit down and think about it. That's what this you know that's what the the word is for, and this is just a primer on that. It's just to get you started. But if you remember last week, we saw the introduction of a major new character. Can anybody remember his name? Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah. Okay, Elijah with a J uh, means Yahweh is God. Okay, um, and then Elisha with an S H A means that God saves or God is a savior. Okay, L is God, and Sha is means something to do with salvation. Okay, it's kind of a root word for salvation. Uh, that's that's going to come in. And a little bit remind me. But we saw Elisha. Elisha is a prophet. He was the successor to Elijah the prophet. So Elijah had this incredible ministry, especially uh, preaching against and doing works against the, the priests of Baal, who was a false god that was in Israel at the time. Uh, and then Elisha was his disciple, his his follower and Elijah, it, became, it came time for Elijah to uh, depart and go and be with the Lord. And so we saw the um, mantle pass on to Elisha. And Elisha asked for a double spirit or a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had. So that same spirit that was enabling Elijah's ministry to do these great things, we saw passed on to Elisha. That was kind of typified by when uh, they got to the Jordan River and Elisha parted the Jordan River in the exact same way that Elijah did. So we see, okay, the same spirit that was at work in Elijah is at work in Elisha. And we talked about that that same spirit is the same spirit that has been at work in every prophet. It's the same spirit that's been at work throughout the entire uh, history of the Old Testament. It's the same spirit that was at work in the New Testament. It's the same spirit that is at work in each of us. There's nothing special, you know, besides God's choosing and deciding to make them special. There's nothing innately special about Elijah or Elisha. In fact, James says Elijah was just a man like anyone else, but he prayed. Okay, he relied on the Spirit of God. So there's a plug for the prayer ministry. Okay, Elijah, all the stuff that Elijah did was through prayer. Um, but that it's the same Spirit that's operative in each of us. And so we're going to learn a lot today about Elisha, but I want us to keep in mind that it's not Elisha, it's the Spirit that's at work in Elisha. And we're going to pull that out. So it's going to pick up in chapter 3 of 2 Kings. Okay, chapter 3 in 2 Kings. And, and it's helpful to remember that these books, uh, especially the books First and Second Kings, um, are historical chronicles. Okay, that's a large part of what they're doing. And so they're working through these chronicles of different reigns of kings, important events that happened. It's not exhaustive. It's not telling us everything that happened in that history. Um, it's just trying to, it's, it's giving us the things that we need to know for certain reasons. Okay, so in chapter 3, we get a little bit of this chronicle. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So just really quick, I want you guys to make sure you have this in your mind. This is a rough drawing of the nation of Israel. And we said that a big part of the book of Kings is that there was a 
division between the north and the south in Israel. So they actually became two different countries, two different uh, kingdoms, okay? And so in the south, we saw Judah. So do you, do you see how it says, in the year that Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, it says Joram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel. So up here is called Israel. And then you see... Uh, he did not depart, or he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Anybody remember what that is? We saw that in, uh, yeah, okay, do you remember what it is? He made the two calves. Yeah. He made the two calves. So when Israel, when the nation of Israel was united, there was Jerusalem, and there was a temple there, and everybody from all over, even up here, would come down to Jerusalem to worship God. Well, when the civil war happened and they made two kingdoms, Jeroboam, who was very smart and evil, said, if everybody still has to go to Jerusalem to worship God, then Judah is still going to exercise an influence over everybody. So here's what I'm going to do. So he was kind of here in Samaria. There's another place up here. And he made these statues of bulls. And he said, here, Israel, these are your gods. Uh... If you want to worship Yahweh, don't go to Jerusalem, go to one of these two places. And he instituted idol worship in those places. And then, like we said, Baal worship was still persistent. That was kind of coming from up here. So there's a lot of idolatry up here that Judah was a little less exposed to. But when he's saying the sin of Jeroboam, that runs throughout the first kings, and that's the sin of these worshiping these calves. So all of that to say, Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, was degrading at a faster rate than the southern kingdom, okay, Judah. And this is where the descendants of King David are still reigning up here. It's lots of other kings. So it's just talking. Now we've got a new king in Israel. His name was Jehoram or Joram. It's kind of the same. Uh, They'd say it the same way. Now, verse 4. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. Moab is kind of over here. Okay, maybe a little more down there. but Moab, they're not Jewish, they're not Israelites, they're another kingdom. Moab was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So that, what, what does that sound like? He had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams, or wool of rams. That's a lot, right? That's a, that's a lot of sheep. Why do you think you had to do that? Tribute. Tribute. Yeah, exactly. They had been conquered. By, they, were, they were like uh, vassals to this nation. And so they were kind of enslaved. They, they were having to offer this tribute all the time. So it says, when Ahab died, so that was the king of Israel. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Joram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. And he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, by which way shall we march? And Joram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. And Edom was kind of down here. Uh... And it was smart to go by way of the wilderness of Edom because Edom was also their vassals, and so they just got all of Edom to come and fight against Moab with them too. Okay, So they're mustering their three forces to come up and fight against Moab. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army, 
or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. So in a time of need, the king of Israel goes to this Elisha, this prophet of the one true God. And Elisha, who is, like most prophets are, very honest, uh, he says, Oh, now you need me? You have these other gods that you have no problem worshiping before. Why don't you go to them? Okay, so Elisha's like, I'm not even going to mess with you, king of Israel. Okay, king of the northern kingdom. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord. You see how it's an L-O-R-D, all uppercase? Okay, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. So it's Yahweh. That's the name of the God that the Jews and Israel worshipped. Okay, so no, it is Yahweh who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So that's a little picture of the differences in righteousness between these two nations. But now bring me a musician, Elisha says. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And Elisha said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam, uh, stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. And then I love this. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord, and he will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all of the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So what he's saying is, and, and it's helpful that geographically, this whole region is a desert, okay? It's very, very dry. There must have been a dry stream bed over there. So it says, look, here's the sign. You're out of water. Uh, God is going to make this stream bed fill up with water but it's not going to be from a storm. It's not going to be, okay, it's just going to be God. And then I love what he says. This is a light thing for God to do. Now that is a miraculous circumstance, this stream bed just filling up with water. This is a light thing for God to do. Do you need anything? Is there anything challenging you right now? Is there anything... Uh, standing in your way that's, that's threatening you, that's scaring you, that's making you despair. Did you hear what the king of Israel said? It's like, God's brought us out here to kill us. <clears throat> okay, he's in, a, he's, he's in a, a frightful state. And he's looking at his circumstances. He's like, there's no way. We're dead. And I love what Elisha says. Man, what you need is a light thing for God to do. And I don't know anybody. Is anybody in here fighting against Moabites right now? Or threatened with dying? Okay. Whoa. <laughs> That's crazy because they don't even exist anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but that's our God. And that's what Elisha is saying. He said, not only is he going to do that, but he's going to hand over the Moabites into your hand. And actually, it's kind of cool. He's going he's to do, do the two things together. So the next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. 
And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out, and they were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. So they look out just the way that the sun is shining. It looks like it's just a field of blood, that there's already been a battle fought. And they're like, you know, well, this is kind of a tenuous arrangement between these three kings anyway. Maybe they got mad at each other before we... And they're like, man, all their stuff's still there. Let's go to the spoil. And so they go out thinking that this is the circumstance. And look up 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Hereseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So they're seizing the city. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. So he's trying to run away. But... They could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall, inside of everybody that's sieging this city. He offered his son as a burnt (coughs) offering. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own lands. This is kind of a weird way to end that, right? Uh, Moab's god, their chief god, was a god named Chemosh, and there's plenty of record to see that Chemosh, uh, worship of Chemosh involved the ritual sacrifice of your children, which is, which is an abomination. Of, actually, of all of the things that you see in the Old Testament about that God gets angry about, there's probably good evidence to say that there's nothing that he gets more angry about than the sacrifice of children to false gods, which is what we see here. Um, what's very, very interesting, this, is, this I think is really cool. In 1865, in the 1860s, uh, a German missionary discovered, he was doing archaeology, archaeological work kind of in this region, and he discovered a steel. You know what a, anybody, any art history majors, you know what a steel is? Or a history, you know, art. Um, it's a big stone that's been carved and then engraved with writing on it. Okay, so it's like a big kind of statue monument that's got writing on it. Um, and they, it, there's this, this steel called the Mesha steel that he discovered. Okay, do you remember what the king of Moab's name was? So you look back in verse 4. Mesha. What this German guy found was a, was a big stone with this writing on it that was written by King Mesha, this king that we just saw. Uh, in sometime between 800, around 800 B.C., okay? And what he says was, and on, on the engraving, it's really interesting, he says, Chemosh, our God, was mad at us, and so he enslaved us to the house of Israel. But then we returned and we sought Chemosh's favor, and he helped us rebel against Israel. So that's his account. That's a big deal, because this is an... Uh, almost 3,000-year-old artifact 
that is backing up what the Bible is saying right here, isn't it? But it's an interesting perspective because he's attributing it to the worship of this god, Chemosh. Now, some people say this thing that happens at the end of chapter 3 when he sacrificed his son on the wall after they had been sieging it. They were like, man, Israel was just ashamed that that had happened. They were so upset that that had happened that they were like, forget it, we're done. You know, we'll stop. Because they hated, they hated that. You could see that because they were trying to exhibit God's heart. Um, but some people say, man, this was an act of spiritual warfare. Okay? When you are messing with gods that aren't the one true God, you're invoking demons. You know that? Any God that is not Yahweh, that is not Jesus, is a demon, is a false, uh, is a liar. And there's spiritual realities, just like we were saying. And so it's kind of hard. Okay, this dude offers this up to Chemosh. Now, none of this spiritual stuff, we saw that in earlier chapters, none of this spiritual stuff happens apart from God saying so. But as a reality of the the spiritual works, the warfare that's happening, there's some crazy stuff, okay? I don't really know, but this is really important. You need to know about this, okay? This is at least, like I said, 2,600 years old, 2,800 years old, or, uh, yeah, um, backing up. Just what this is. And there's a long list of that. I've got some if you ever, ever want to see them. List of archaeological things that we're not looking to archaeology to prove the Bible. We don't need, the Bible is true. We don't need to prove it. We know it's true. Um, but there's lots of critics and skeptics that will say, for instance, your Bible's wrong because it talks about this Pontius Pilate guy all the time in the New Testament, but there's no archaeological evidence to say that he ever existed. So it's bogus. It's made up. Well, and then in the early 1900s, they discovered a pillar that said this was Pontius Pilate's. And it's like, oh, look, here's some archaeological evidence that says exactly what this historical document has been saying all along. But there's a long list. They used to think that the Hittites didn't exist. They couldn't find, they couldn't find the Hittites. You see the Hittites over and over again in the Old Testament. They're like, we don't have any archaeological evidence, so the Bible's wrong. None of it's true. And then they discovered, like, now it's so much that they have, they've, they've discovered these... Uh, buried cities of Hittite artifacts and all this stuff. Now it's so much that uh, they have whole dictionaries of Hittite language and all kinds of, I mean, you know, you got some? Yeah, my linguistics class, they talked a lot about that. It's like a secular linguist class I'm taking up here, and they talked about a missionary guy who was going through Turkey, and he found like a whole long lost record of the Hittite language, and there was a lot of work done for like um, just uncovering their script and trying to understand how their language was. Yeah, so, so, and it used to, it was a commonly held scholastic, you know, the skeptic, the guys that are saying, you stupid Christians, like, you talked about Hittites all the time. <laughs> Everyone knows there's no such thing as Hittites. <laughs> that was 100, you know, 100 years, 200 years ago. That was very common. Okay? So I just say all that to say, the world, and especially academia, they're going to hold on to anything that they can to, dis- to disagree with us because they hate God. Okay? And Jesus said, the world hated me. They're going to hate you too. But don't be swayed by that. Especially arguments from silence. Okay? That's, that's a really bad argument. Okay? But uh, there's all kinds of things. So just, so just to say, look, this is a very specific story. You can Wikipedia this mesh of steel. It's super cool. Um, but, but the Bible's true. And this is just one more reason that we can have confidence that it is. And if anybody's going to come to you with that jazz, just... <laughs> Say, hey, let's look at the Meshes, let's look at the Hittites, let's look at Pontius, let's look at all this. I'm not that easily swayed, okay? And there's one guy that I really like, he says, Christians have no reason to be scared of archaeology, we have no reason to be scared of science, because all anybody's going to discover is what we already know is there. 
because God is true. The Bible is true. You get that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Mesh of steel. Look it up. Anyway, crazy guys offering their kids to Chemosh. Uh, Israel loses that battle, but we see Elisha at work in that situation too. He's speaking as a prophet of the Lord. He's directing uh, these people. He's um, working these kind of supernatural miracles, you know, or God is working these miracles kind of through Elisha, talking about, okay, all the cool water stuff, everything like that. Uh, if you carry nothing else away from today, just remember, this is a little thing for our God. God just filled up a whole plane full of water and trounced a bunch of Moabites. Your test is going to be okay. All right? Your roommate problem is a small thing for the Lord. Even big family stuff that you've got going on, okay? Financial problems, all of that. I know, it's, it can be serious, but our God is a big God. Okay? Give it time. Let's see. And so we're going to see other ways that this God acts through Elisha. So chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, this is a good prophet, this is a prophet of Yahweh, cried to Elisha. And she said, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to me. So talk about financial problem. Okay. The creditor has come to me to take away my two children to be his slaves. So it was a way of making remuneration to take her kids away. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So he said, Go outside and borrow vessels from all of your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all of these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and she shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the <coughs> vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. And then, and only then, the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. Isn't that cool? Get this little jar of oil, and it just never stops filling up all these vessels. Okay? And go and sell it all. It's pretty awesome. Let's look at the next one. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, presumably Elisha had kind of an itinerant ministry, he would kind of wander around all over the place. And so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came in there and he turned into the chamber and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant. So Gehazi is uh, Elisha's um, one of his disciples or his servant, his, like his, his helper. Uh, so he turns to Gehazi, his servant, and he says, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all of this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. So he's, he's saying, Look, I've, I've got access to the king of Israel, you've been really, really gracious to us. You've added an extra room in your house for us to stay in. 
what do you want? You want us to go put in a good word for you with the king? Is there something that we, some, something that you really wanted that you know we can kind of grease the wheels a little bit, get you in here? And she responds very humbly. She's like, I don't need your king. She's a Shunem is not in Israel. She's a foreigner. She goes, I'm happy to, I'm happy to be here. I'm fine. She's very humble. She's not asking for anything. She's not helping this man of God because she can get something from him. She's just happy to help him. She's glad that she's... Um, and actually, Shuna might be in Israel. I'm getting confused with Elijah. But either way, okay, she's not, she's not trying to gain anything from this. She's just trying to uh, be faithful. So she answered, I'm content to dwell among my own people. And so he said, what then is to be done for her? And so Gehazi answered. Gehazi's kind of throwing out a suggestion. Well... She has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and Elisha said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, just as Elisha had said to her. Again, very cool. Okay, see parallels of the Abraham story, Abraham and Sarah and that, okay. Um, she was as good as dead, kind of like Sarah was, okay. There was not the possibility of life coming out of that, and yet because she was, uh, not because, but, but in her character, she's like, I'm not trying to gain anything. But God just blesses her with this awesome gift that she gets a son. And then verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and then he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. Maybe he's having a seizure. Maybe he's having an aneurysm. We don't know, but something's happening in his head, some medical problem in his head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She didn't ask for a kid. God gives her a kid, and the kid dies. Maybe you feel that way. You know? Kind of the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Well, God, I wish you hadn't giveth just to take it away. And that's kind of where she is. And she went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. So she asked her husband, I need, I need to go find the man of God. Her husband says, well, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or Sabbath. Clearly, he doesn't know that his son has died. And she said, all is well. Now, why she said that, we're not really sure. Is she lying, trying to protect him from that? Is she faithful, saying everything's going to be okay? God gave me a kid when I didn't have any possibility of that happening. All is well. I just need to talk to this man of God. We don't know. Uh, verse 24, then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. Gehazi went out to meet her. Elisha is still back home. She doesn't want to talk to her husband. She doesn't want to talk to Gehazi. She wants to talk to Elisha. When she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. 
But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. And then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So she's saying, I don't want you to send Gehazi. I want you. Okay? And in that, she's saying, I don't want... I want your God. You are the prophet of this God. You are the one that God acts through, that God speaks through. I want Yahweh. I don't want... So, Gehazi goes on ahead, but she's like, Look, man, I'm not leaving. So Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet them, and he told them, The child has not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So Elisha went in, and he shut the door behind the two and prayed to the Lord. Again, prayer. He went up, and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, and his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, and he walked once back and forth in the house, and then he went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi, and he said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. And she came, and she fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. Again, this working of God, even in in death, okay, through this prophet raising someone from the dead. Uh, What the seven sneezes is about, I have no idea. Seven. Huh? Seven. Seven. Yeah, he's perfectly sneezing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon one time called "The Seven Sneezes," uh, that is about evidences of life in a new Christian. How you can tell if someone has really come to life again or not, and he, and he was evidences, and he called and he used this as his kind of text. Um, but whatever this, the sneezes are just evidences of life. He started breathing. Maybe it's like he's coughing. You know, whatever it is. Uh, but but he's alive. He was dead and he was made alive. Also very cool. This is a small thing for our God. Let's look at this last. This is two stories right here. Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine and gathered from its lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. Anybody a Boy Scout? Okay. Matt, you were a Boy Scout? Cub Scout. You were a Cub Scout. I got my, my arrow and I gave it up. Good job. But, but you did get a black belt in jujitsu or whatever it was. Uh, watch out. Uh, well, did, when you were a Cub Scout, did they teach you not to eat things that you don't know what they are, that you find in the woods? No. Oh, man. <laughs> I just ate whatever I found. Let me do you a favor, okay? If you don't know what it is, don't eat it. And don't ask Matt. And don't ask Matt. <laughs> uh, but that's what this guy does. He goes out and he says, oh, these look good. They cut it up and they put it in a stew. Bad idea. 
Verse 40. And they poured out some for the men to eat, but while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. (laughs) And they could not eat it. I don't think that that's a euphemism. I think it's actually poisonous. Okay. There's death in the pot. Uh, I got it. Never mind. Uh, Verse 41. And then Elisha said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Now part of me is like, What would that, like, Guy throws flour in there. He's like, No, it's good. It's like, Yeah, that was, that was poison a minute ago. Uh, I don't know. But, but no, they ate it. And whatever it was, whatever uh, death, whatever poison was in that stew had been removed. They were able to eat it. Last one. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Remember, this is during a famine. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What does that sound like? Fishes and loaves, right? Uh, So if you're not familiar with the story of the fishes and the loaves, there's a very similar account of Jesus in the Gospels. Okay, When they've gone out some distance and Jesus has been preaching, uh, and there's large multitudes of crowds out there, and and it's late in the day, and one of the disciples says, Jesus, these men and women are hungry. Send them home, because they've got to go back to a city where they can get some food. And Jesus turns to him and says, you feed them. He goes, what am I supposed to feed them with? There's not... And Jesus said, well, what do we have? And they said, well, there's a boy here. He's got some loaves of bread and a few fishes. But that's no way. Could... He's like, thousands and thousands of dollars can feed all of these people. And Jesus says, no, give it to them. And so they go around, and they pass it all out. And then what? Remember, there's baskets left over. Okay. This is a direct parallel that Elisha is foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus. And in fact, when Jesus is doing that, in a lot of ways, he is, it is a, because all of these people are going to be so familiar, Elisha is like their hero. Okay? They know all about Elisha and the things that he did. They know, man, Elisha is the greatest prophet that there ever was. And Jesus just did more than Elisha did. Elisha fed a hundred men. Jesus fed thousands and thousands. Okay? And so they're immediately saying, wow, there is something special about this Jesus. All of this, in some ways, this Elisha is not only is he a testimony to the power of God and the different ways that God works, but he is setting the tea up for Jesus to come and knock it out of the park. Okay? Because Jesus is a better Elisha. And we even saw that, that Elijah... Okay, was the one that came before, that he lived in the wilderness, he had the camel's hair, he wore the belt of leather, sound like anybody? Mm-hmm. Okay, John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus. Elijah's ministry gave way to Elisha's ministry. Okay, and just like we said, Elisha asked for a double portion. Elisha does, uh, is credited with many more miracles than that of Elijah. And John the Baptist said, there's one who's coming after me. 
who is greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. So Elijah leads to Elisha. John the Baptist is even said to have come in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist gives way to Jesus. And so in all of these miracles, actually there's a lot of parallels to Jesus, isn't there? Okay. So you remember when the, so the ladies pouring the oil in the vessels? You remember the wedding at Cana? Yeah. Water and the wine, okay? Mm-hmm. Do whatever he says. Take these big vessels, fill it up with water, dip it in, take it out. It's wine all of a sudden, okay? It's a, a prophetic miracle that Jesus is doing. And even in that, there's this truth that, remember she was in debt? She was in need financially, but um, all of us comes with, with spiritual debts, don't we? All of us come with these needs, these, um, these payments that we can't make. And, and the wages of sin is death, and, and the creditors come to take from us. And Jesus came to pay our debts, to forgive our debts. He came to give us exactly what we needed. So there's that miracle, uh, that picture, Elisha's picturing this, this miracle of the wedding of Canaan, even more Jesus paying our debts. So you remember the birth, the miraculous birth from the Shunammite woman? Okay, that's, that's nothing less than a picture of the gospel, Life coming out of death, where there, where there is not the possibility of life, where God, all things are possible, life comes out of death, or when he dies again, and he's raised from the dead, Jesus is credited with raising a few people from the dead. Okay, there's one in Luke chapter 7, there's a widow at Nain, it looks just like this, so the, her son dies, and she's crying, Jesus says, hey, now get up, he gets up, or there's Lazarus, remember Lazarus is in the tomb. But there's something even cooler. Did it, did it weird anybody out? The first time I read this, I was like, he's laying on this kid. <laughs> Is that weird? Okay. Uh, I think one of the best is a little mysterious. Why is he doing that? There's not anything else like that in the Bible. But I think one of the best interpretations I've seen of that is that Elisha laying on this dead boy's body is him identifying with the dead. If you, especially if you remember, to a Jew, to a Hebrews, dead bodies were unclean. Remember? You can't even touch one. You were defiled. And Elisha comes in and he lays on top of him. He puts his eyes where his eyes are. He puts his mouth where his mouth is. He puts his hands where his hands are. God, very God, was sitting on his throne in heaven. And he left this place of holiness, of cleanness, of pristineness, and he came to identify with the dead. To put his eyes where our eyes are. Put his mouth where our mouth is. Put his hands where our hands are. To be so close with us and to breathe that breath of life into us and give us life. Isn't that cool? Okay, that, that picture of that. The deadly stew. The poison of sin. Christ removes feeding of the multitudes. This is really neat to stop and think about. And it keeps on going. Do you remember Jesus healed lepers? Right? Let's look at this. Chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Stop and think about that. What do we learn just from that sentence? What do we learn about Naaman? A little time for observation. You guys shout it out. Just from that sentence, what do we learn about him? What can we observe? Is important? Okay, great. Why do you know he's important? He's a commander. Commander of the king, no less. Yeah, okay. What else do we know about him? He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile, okay? He's a non-Jew, he's a non-Hebrew. He is from Syria. 
Syria were the bad guys at this point. Okay? So, yeah, so good observations. And then it says right after that, he was a great man with his master and high in favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And lepers universally were unclean because it was highly contagious. Okay? And if you were a leper, you were disdained. You were excluded from fellowship. It was uh, a sign of dishonor. It was a curse. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So here's this little Hebrew girl that had been enslaved by the Syrians, and she worked for Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now that's pretty special. You stop and think. You know, like I said, this is one where you could really dig into this text, and I'm going to have to prevent that. But uh, she was enslaved by these guys, and yet she's like, man, if he would just go talk to Elisha, he'd be healed. Like, she, like, she could know that in her heart. Like, man, if he, I know how he could get healed. I'm not going to tell him. But she's like, he needs to go talk to Elisha. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his lord, that is the king, told the king of Syria, Thus and spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Obviously the king of Syria wants Naaman to be well also. So he went, and they sent a letter to the king of Israel. I love how you, you can see a little glimpse of this. They don't go to Elisha, they go to the king of Israel. These are kings, they're talking to kings. In their culture... The prophets worked for the kings. I mean, it was just the king had absolute authority over everything, okay? Uh, so we're powerful people. Let's go talk to the powerful people and let's get some stuff done. And not only that, look. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That's a lot of money. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Saying, all right, king, we're here. Here's some money. Uh, let's get this taken care of so Naaman can come back. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. There's a little detail in that. Naaman's coming to see Elisha, this powerful man, this big man. You ever, like... If the dean of your college said, hey, I want a meeting with you, would you miss that meeting? Say, hey, come here at 9. Come meet with me. Okay? You would, like, bend over back. You know, you guys are never on time for anything. <laughs> Tell me, you guys are on time for this. Good job. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of times where it's like, well, this isn't super important, or I need to cancel it. You know, but if it's somebody really important, you're like, man, I'm going to do everything I can to get in, I need to meet with that person. Okay? Well, here's this really important guy coming to Elisha. 
And Elisha is like, yeah, send my servant, go talk to him, tell him this. Okay? Elisha is not entering into the power politics of what's happening right now. He just says, yeah, go send the servant, tell him to go wash in the river seven times, and he's, and he's fine. Imagine what that did to Naaman. This man, he's the king, he's a high man, uh, king's commander, and he just got blown off by this prophet. So he says, uh, go send him to wash seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. You see, coming out of this, not just his leprosy, but his pride. Okay? And that's something that's at the root for all of us. God, God is not just trying to cure him of his leprosy. He's trying to cure him of his pride. Okay? Uh, and he goes away in a rage. He's like, man, that's not good enough. I wanted this special treatment. I wanted this. Shaking his whole understanding of how the world works. But his servants, again, his servants are the ones. His servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And you kind of think, it's also like, what's it going to hurt, man? We're right here. Okay? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Again, and I love that the king, the king is right. He's like, am I God to heal you of your leprosy? Okay? It gives us sense, like, we kind of, it's hard for us to get this in our head because uh, we have so many curable diseases now. We have so many ways to take care of medical problems. But back then, you were screwed. You had leprosy. You had to go live out in a leper colony. Okay, it was over. And they rightly knew, man, only God can cure this. Okay? And what did Jesus come doing? Curing lepers all over the place. Why? Because he's God. He's testifying to you. And Elisha, even this, he's like, it's not me doing it, it's God doing it. Okay? I'm a prophet of God. Jesus comes, and Jesus doesn't ever say, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you. Jesus wasn't a prophet in that sense. He was God. He didn't need an intermediary. He was the guy. Okay? And so he's cured of his leprosy. But do you remember? He came with all of this money. He came with all of this stuff. He came because he thought, that's how this works. If I want favor from a god, if I want favor from a king, if I want favor from somebody with power and authority, you got to buy it. Right? So verse 15, He returned to the man of God, he and all his companions, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules' load of earth. For from now on, on your, from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Remember in Levitical law, you couldn't, or actually in Exodus, you couldn't offer uh, a sacrifice to Yahweh except on an altar made of earth. You couldn't build an altar made out of stone. So he's saying, let me take some earth from Israel so that I can worship the God of Israel. He is a convert. Okay? Uh, 
In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon, that's another god of Syria, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. That is, all the gold and the silver and the clothes. As the Lord lives, I will run after him, and I will get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. Kind of like that lady, that repeating all as well. A little Hebrew fun for you. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. So he's lying. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, and he tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing, and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried him before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent them in away. And they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when, you, when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments? olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. Does that sound familiar, that male, ser- male servants, female servants? Yeah, from the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's ox, or your neighbor's mule or your neighbor's male servant, your neighbor's female. He's coveting. Okay, so uh, Elisha pins him to the wall and look at verse 27 he says therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever until he went out from his presence a leper like snow the reason Elisha is so upset the reason that this happens to him is because this what he did flies in the face of the gospel Naaman came and God humbled him to the point where he was finally like, you know what, whatever earthly pride, whatever worldly wisdom I had, I'm going to set that aside, and I'm just going to bow down before this God, dip myself in this river. And that's all that it took, and he was healed. And then for many of you, that's probably akin to your story. Okay, You were saved, and you were brought to a moment of humility. I cannot save myself. All of my resources have been exhausted, and it seems like every attempt that I make to get close to God on my own merits fails. But when God comes to me, and I lay myself down, I humble myself, I'm healed. But then, that what like Naaman, we have that same thought. It's like, but now I have to pay God back. So I've been saved by grace, but now I have to perfect in the flesh what was started in the spirit. And so you think, man, now I have to render this service to God to pay him back for all of this work that he did. That's what Naaman's doing. He says, let me pay you this. And Elisha says, forbid it. Just go. Can you imagine how shocking that is? Especially for this man that's used to just, you know, bribing everybody, getting everything his own way, that this is how power works and, and how, you know, how, how much of an affront to him that is. You can't pay me back. This isn't 
a worldly thing that we're talking about. I don't care about these treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. I don't care about that. I'm in it for the heavenly gifts. You've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. And then Gehazi turns around and screws it all up. He confuses that, and he comes to him and says, Hey, yeah, no, by the way, actually you do. You do need to pay a little bit. That's not the gospel. So if you're in here and you're in a believer in Jesus Christ, there's that moment where you humbled yourself and just received the grace of God. That is still where you stand. Okay? Do not fall into that error of thinking that you have to pay God back. He's just going to continue to give that gift. But also, don't fall into that error of that pride and saying, I cannot be helped by God. Okay? Lay yourself down. All right? And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. This is our God. This is who we've been talking about all day. Elisha is just a picture of Jesus. And this grace is here and it's free for you. So you may not have leprosy. You may not be in financial difficulty. You may not, but you are dead. Just like we all are. We have that poison of sin working out in each and every one of us. And God wants to take that away. Jesus came to take that away. You just have to come to him. Nothing in your hand you bring. Pray, ask, and that forgiveness is yours, that grace is yours. Isn't that good news? Man, very good. We were going to get a lot farther than that, but whatever. Uh, somebody pray for us, we'll be done. Leith, Sarah, great. Sarah's a, you're the prayer warrior. Do yeah. it. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for this blessed fellowship we have amongst ourselves, and I pray that these lessons, these parallels between the prophets and you and when you came here to earth and took on flesh um, will resonate in our hearts and will be applicable to so many different aspects of our lives. And I pray we'll consider this and share it and proclaim it to the world, and may your grace be with us and nothing of our own. Let us consider that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. I hope to see some of you guys in prayer on Wednesday morning.